creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Laurie, for a Herculean reading. <laughs> Did you notice, though, um, we didn't print uh, the scripture because basically it would have doubled the length of the program this morning. And, and yet sometimes when you don't even have text to follow along and you're forced to just listen, it, scripture lands even differently and it engages us differently. It's worth noting, this isn't, it's not better to read versus to listen, but it's worth noting that uh, the Bible comes to us from eras, ancient cultures, where most people probably were not literate. And the, the majority of people didn't, you know, get up in the morning and have their quiet time. They couldn't read and they didn't have, you know, books and they just heard it. And somehow the word of God is so powerful that when we just hear it, it can still sink in and change us. And so... I hope you got to experience a little bit of that listening. And Lori, I appreciate the way you read that thoughtfully too. Thank you. We're starting a little series this morning, taking a close look at the very beginning of the Bible, starting from page one. We're studying the book of Genesis, which just means beginnings. And Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's, it's maybe the most foundational book in the Bible. And it's all about beginnings. It's all about first things, and it's all about God, who is the source, the beginning, the author of all things. Now, in some circles, uh, Genesis can also be a controversial book. And there are people who insist on interpreting Genesis in various different ways. And they say that if you're not on board with their interpretation, then somehow you're not being faithful to the Bible. Or they'll say you're not being biblical, whatever that even means. And what many people will say is that in order for something to be true, it has to be literally true. 
So this morning, as we explore Genesis 1, we are kind of exploring Genesis 1, but we're also exploring at a much bigger level the nature of truth. So consider this. If, um, and she's not here, but if uh, she's in the nursery this morning, if I were to write my wife a poem on our anniversary, and imagine, imagine I do that, and one of the lines of the poem says, I love you a whole lot. Now, my wife is, is very kind, and she's very generous, and so she would probably say, Chris, that's very sweet of you, and in the back of her mind, she'd be thinking, and that's very bad poetry, right? Like, uh, it's just, it's wooden, and it's rigid, and it's, uh. Now, imagine I wrote a poem, and uh, instead of saying, like, I love you a whole lot, it said something like, every time I come home from work and I see you, my heart leaps out of my chest. Now, that's... Um, that's actually still not really top-tier poetry, but it's at least better than, I love you a whole lot. Now, which is true? Which is true? It's, it's not, I don't, I don't think I have to say this, but I'll say it. It's not literally true that my heart leaps out of my chest. And thank God, because that would make a mess. But even if it's not literally true that my heart leaps out of my chest, somehow, I think my wife Jamie would say it is more true to say my heart leaps out of my chest than it is to just say, I love you a whole lot. I mean, both are true. But one, to her, communicates truth better and more and more deeply. In a sense, the most true way to tell my wife I love her is the least true way. Does that make sense? At least the least literally true. In other words, there are truths in life and in the world that are so rich and so meaningful and so deep and so profound that literal and scientific and rigid attempts to express them fall far short. They almost do an injustice to the thing. In fact, the only way to approach those rich and meaningful and profound truths is, is uh, what one author calls to come at it slant through metaphor and through word pictures and through poetry. There are people who will say that the only way to interpret Genesis 1 is to believe that, that, well, it says God made everything in six literal days. And so it must have been six literal 24-hour days. And that introduces all sorts of questions, and frankly, good questions, but it pits faith against science as though the two were enemies. And that brings up a lot of really good questions. In fact, most of you are on our email list, and I emailed you, and I told you, this is what I'm going to preach about. And if you have questions as you're reading to prepare, let me know. And I got some good questions. Questions like, Chris, how can God have created light before the sun and the moon and the stars? What was the source of light if there was no sun and moon and stars? Another question that one of you sent was, Chris, don't we believe that God created everything out of nothing? And yet, before God even starts creating in Genesis, it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Well, how can there be waters if there was nothing? There are actually very good questions involved as we interpret Genesis 1. What I want to show you this morning is that the point and the purpose of Genesis 1 is not to be a science textbook. 
And in fact, we see this kind of on both sides of the debate in the question of science versus faith, that, that people assume that if faith is true, then science can't be true, or that if science is true, then faith can't be true. But in reality, that completely misses the point of what God is doing through his scriptures in Genesis 1. So in some sense, I'm going to give you a non-answer. Did, did God make things in six literal days or not? I, he could have. He's certainly, he's powerful enough, of course he could have, but that's not the point. That's not the point. In fact, most Hebrew scholars will tell you that Genesis 1, because Genesis 1 was written in Hebrew, it's not explicit poetry in its form, but it's, it's exceedingly poetic. And, and there, is, there is rich metaphor, and there are word pictures, and there is a rhythm, and there is cadence. You probably even heard some of that rhythm and cadence as Laurie was reading. Isn't that amazing, by the way, that we can translate from one language into a completely different language, and yet we still sense the poetry that is at work. And so if we're going to really understand what God is telling us through Genesis, we have to take those things just as seriously. And we have to ask questions like, when, when was Genesis written? And to whom was Genesis written? And why was it written? Why is it even there in the first place? We have to remember, and I come back to this every so often, but it's important to remind ourselves, uh, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. Genesis was written thousands of years ago to a very different audience, and the people or person writing Genesis had no idea that modern Americans, modern 21st century Americans, would ever be reading it. They didn't know there was an America or that there would be an America. Now, the, the word of God is living, and it, it, there's somehow that it becomes alive in us. And so it still is true for us. It is for us today. But in order to understand that, we also have to do the best we can to understand the original setting in which it was written. I don't, I don't often get into these kinds of like nitpicky academic distinctions, but I, I think it will be helpful, especially this morning, and especially as we start wrestling in some ways with this big question of faith and science. It comes up over and over again, especially in Genesis. We have to answer questions like, when, well, when was it written? And you won't be surprised probably to, to hear that there's disagreement about this as well. So the range, most, probably over 90% of the, of the really good, kind of best Old Testament scholars will tell you that it was written somewhere between about 1400 B.C. and maybe 500 B.C. But that's a big range. That's a thousand-year range. So which is it? One group thinks that it was written about 1400, maybe 1420 or so B.C. by Moses while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. So if you remember the story of the Exodus— that's the second book of the Bible. If you don't, I'll give you a quick recap. God's people, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt, and God miraculously set his people free from slavery. But they don't get to go to their home, which is called the promised land, for 40 years. So for 40 years, they're wandering around in this wilderness without a home. And there's one, one kind of branch of Old Testament scholars who, who think that Moses wrote it, or one of Moses' people wrote it during that time period, as God's people are wandering around homeless for 40 years. There's another group of scholars who thinks that Genesis was written about a thousand years later, 
probably during a period called the Babylonian exile. So if you know your, again, if you know your ancient Israelite history, if not, I'll catch you up real quick. Israel became a political nation state. They were very powerful, but eventually, and you can read all about this in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, because Israel were disobedient and the Israelite kings were disobedient to God, God allowed other countries and other nations to come and take them over. And so about 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire, and this is historically verifiable, the Babylonian Empire came and overtook and overthrew the nation of Israel. And so this other group of scholars believes that Genesis was written when Israelites, the Israelites were exiles. Now, how do we reconcile those two? Which is it? Consider this. Imagine that you're, you're an Israelite right after they've been set free from slavery. 1400 B.C. You were a slave. Now you're not a slave through a series of incredible miracles. But you haven't got a home yet. God has promised you a home, but it's been maybe years, maybe it's been decades since God has promised you a home and you're still homeless. And God still hasn't come through on that promise. And you're wondering, like, is there a God? And is he actually going to come through on this promise? Because I've been waiting 10 or 20 or maybe 30 years When you're stuck wandering what you think is aimlessly in the wilderness, what do you need to hear from God? How about, I have a home for my people. I don't make anything or anyone without first making a suitable home for them. And I know you don't see it right now, but I am making a home for you a place where you can experience rest and peace, the shalom of God. Do you think that might be a message you need to hear? Now imagine you live a thousand years later. You're an Israelite. Your country has been overrun by an enemy army. Now you're a political exile. And the enemy knows that the best way to suffocate your national identity is to separate you geographically from your homeland. So you've been forcibly removed from your home. You're living in a strange country. You don't even speak the language. You don't know where to get a good haircut. You don't know who has the best prices on produce. Like all of these things that it means to have a home, you have none of that. You're separated maybe from your family and from your friends. And you thought you were God's people. And you thought God was going to care for you and, ta- and protect you and now you're homeless and you're not so sure. What do you need to hear from God? How about, I have a home for my people and I don't create anything or anyone without first making a suitable home for them. And I know you might not see it just yet. And I know you don't understand, but I am making a home for you, a place where you can find peace and rest and the shalom of God. I am making a forever home for you. Do you get the point? Whether Genesis was written in 1400 BC or 500 BC, almost a thousand years later, God's people needed to hear the same thing. And today, we need to hear the same thing. That God is making a home for you.
a forever home, that he cares for you, that he protects you, that whether you realize or not, God is for you. That is what Genesis 1 is doing. Let me show you. Because Genesis 1 is not, in fact, a science textbook. Ancient Hebrews were completely uninterested in the question, did God create the earth in six literal 24-hour days or not? Probably didn't even cross their minds. If you're a slave or an exile, who cares? Genesis 1 is not about how things were created. It's about who created them. And it's telling us a story about a God who cares and a God who protects a God who loves his people, and a God who is for his people. Let me show you how this works. And by the way, this is not, these are not my original ideas. If you arrange the six, column, the six days of creation, there are six days, right? Day one, day two, day three, four, five, and six. If you arrange them as a grid with two vertical columns and three horizontal rows in each grid, you get six squares. And by the way, I've, I've put like a little sample of this for you in the program So each square stands for one of the six days of creation. In the left column, you have days one through three. And in the right-hand column, you have days four, five, and six. So days one and four are next to each other, you see. Days two and five are next to each other. And days three and six are next to each other. As we look over each of the six days, you can, and you can actually do this if you're here, you can fill in this grid. What does God make on each of those days? What does he make on day one? He creates light, it says. He creates light, and he separates light from darkness. On day two, what does he create? Essentially, he, he, it says he separates the waters from the other waters and creates an expanse in between them that he calls sky. So you might say the water and the sky he creates on day two. On day three, God separates water from water and lets dry land appear in the water as a, as a, as a separation between the water. So he creates land and I didn't actually notice this until just this week, vegetation on day three. That's going to be important. We'll come back to it. Now go to the second column. On day four, God creates what? The sun and the moon and the stars, all of the, the light-giving bodies in the sky. Day five, what does God create? Birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And on day six, what does he create? He creates land animals and then he creates humans. So you've got this little grid filled in. What do you notice? On the left-hand column, days one, two, and three, God creates basically environments. He creates habitats. He creates homes. And on days four, five, and six, God fills and populates the homes that he has created. This tells us so much about God. It tells us he's a God of order, not a God of chaos. It tells us that he's a hospitable God, making environments for us that allow us to flourish. Just take day three. I've, I've always kind of wondered, I kind of wondered and then skipped over it. Like, why does day three tell us about vegetation? Who cares? God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. Why? Maybe because he doesn't just put us on earth on day six and make us figure it out. It's as if God creates the first humans and he creates us and puts us in an environment where we actually have food. Have you ever been on, 
this is kind of a silly example, but you ever gone on vacation and you, you went to like a hotel, better, not better than a hotel, you went to an Airbnb and you got there and you opened the fridge and it's completely empty. You're like, ah, I got to go out and, you know. Or have you ever been to an Airbnb and you open the fridge or you look and there's like, there's a couple, not a ton, but there's, there's some bagels and there's some fruit and there's just a little act of providing some food makes for an incredible act of hospitality, makes for home. It's thoughtful. It communicates care. That's what God is doing. Genesis 1 tells us that God always makes a home for his people. He doesn't create anything or anyone without making a suitable home for them. And by making safe and hospitable environments for his creatures, including us, he proves that he cares for and will protect his people. And to a group of people who are homeless, it is awfully powerful to hear God say, I am making and I will make a forever home for you. That's exactly what the Israelites needed to hear in the wilderness. It's exactly what the Israelites needed to hear during the Babylonian exile. God is making a home for you. And I would wager it's, it's exactly what you and I need to hear from God, even today. Especially when we find ourselves in moments of deep questions and pain and suffering. God, this is not turning out the way I thought it would turn out. I really thought things were going to go differently, God. I really thought you were going to protect me and care for me better. I really thought you weren't going to lead me into these kinds of circumstances. What are you even doing here, God? Are you even here? Why would you let this happen? You think the Israelites asked some of those same questions in the wilderness and in the exile? In those moments, it's as if God is saying, open your Bible and just just open to page one, (laughs) literally page one, and see that I have made a home for you and I am making a home for you. From page one of our Bible, we see that God has not created us and then left us to fend for ourselves, but he has made us and he has made a home for us. And even if we don't understand everything that's going on, that does not mean he is absent. I came across a really, um, what I found to be a really surprising reminder of this uh, just this past week on Monday. Some of you were here on Monday and we had, we celebrated Marge Pomper's memorial service. Just a dear Middle Street member and saint. She died a month and a half ago, and uh, her children had selected John 14 as one of the scripture readings. So as John 14 was being read during the service, and I knew that this was coming up, I couldn't help but hear it with Genesis 1 in mind. Now in John 14, Jesus is having basically his last conversation with his closest followers. And you know, if you know that you're going to have, this is going to be your last conversation with somebody, you're going to make it count. And Jesus knows this, and he's going to make this conversation with his followers count. Let me read to you John 14, verses 1 through 6. And by the way, we we read this at like over 50% of funerals. This is common, common funeral text. But listen to it in the setting with, with, with all of this about Genesis 1 and God making a home for us in mind. Jesus said to his followers, 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And then Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I had never seen this until just this Monday at Marge's service of all places. In Jesus' final conversation with his closest followers, what does he tell them? I have a home for you. I'm preparing a home for you. You may not see it. You may not understand. We know they don't understand because Thomas literally says, like, we don't understand. How do we get there? And Jesus says, quite simply, just follow me. I'm the way. Follow me. Now, in that moment, Jesus' disciples also didn't, they, they had no clue what Jesus was up to. Just like the Israelites had no clue what God was up to when he led them out of Egypt and when he led them essentially into exile. But that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know what he was up to. Just because we don't understand what God is doing doesn't mean that God doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't mean that he's not doing something good. And with the benefit of hindsight, and for us, with the benefit of the rest of the New Testament, what do we see? That Jesus himself is going and has gone to prepare for us a home, an eternal home, a forever home, a place of peace and of rest and of deep shalom, where all is as it should be. And as it turns out, in order to go to the place that he has prepared for us, he first had to go to a place of loss. On the cross, Jesus entered the wilderness of the Israelites in order to bring his people, in order to bring us out. Do you see? On the cross, Jesus himself was exiled so that we could be brought back from exile. On the cross, what did Jesus say? Seven last words and maybe some of the most famous. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What does it mean to be forsaken by God except that you are in the wilderness and in exile? In exile from your own father. In exile from the very presence of God. See, the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, they thought that they had lost the presence of God. They hadn't. They just didn't feel it. In the Babylonian exile, when they were political exiles in the 500s BC, they thought that they had lost the presence of God. They hadn't, but they felt like they had. And yet Jesus on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, takes our place in the wilderness and in the exile and actually experiences the loss of God. He experiences, that's what we call hell, by the way. Jesus goes through hell on the cross in order to bring us back from the wilderness and the exile. 
In Jesus Christ, you see, God has made a home for us. In Jesus Christ, God himself became homeless so that we would have a forever home. And at tremendous cost to himself, he proved and he demonstrated. He cares for us. He provides for us. He loves us. He is for us. Amen.